Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter. Please open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. Actually, we're going to start in 1 Peter chapter 3. The heart of the sermon today is 1 Peter 4, 1 through 3, but we're going to back up a little and get some context. So let's start reading at 1 Peter 3, 18. The word of the Lord. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. We walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word today in need of it. Help us to know that we need it. Help us to be hungry for it. Help us to savor it, too, as something that's really good. I pray for accuracy in preaching. I pray for clarity. I pray that souls here would be softened and quickened by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of the sermon this morning is Purposefully Short. Um, This church, our church, I think uh, really enjoys building up personal arsenals. And, um, And I think that's a good thing. But if you think this sermon this morning is about um, rifles and pistols and swords and bows, those kinds of things, I have good news for you. A sermon is about something much greater than that. It's about the mind of Christ. So I have a question for you this morning. Do you want to know the mind of Christ? And if so, how do you get the mind of Christ? Well, that's our task this morning, is to know something of the mind of Christ and to learn how to get more of it. Well, this, this section today is in the middle of 1 Peter, and so when we, when we pick up a passage like this, of course, we want to know the context. For these books, especially the short books, I really recommend reading through them in one sitting if you can. Usually it's about 10 to 15 minutes, but we don't have that time today. 1 Peter is about suffering. And it's not just about suffering. It is, a, it is a call to arms. It's a powerful 
plea, an exhortation to suffer like Christ did. If I were to um, choose a theme for 1 Peter, I think it would be suffer well like Jesus. Now, this is an ambitious task. How, How do you convince somebody to suffer well like the Lord? How how do you get somebody to do that? Well, you do it the way the Holy Spirit does it. And when, when he's writing through Peter, he tells us what our standing is. He gives us exhortation. He gives us instruction. And at the end, he gives us incentive. It's all beautifully packaged in 1 Peter. Now, before we get to the sermon, I, I want to say a couple of things about the mind of Christ. The meaning of having the same mind of Christ in this passage, since 1 Peter is about suffering, that meaning is, is about having his mind in suffering. That is the meaning of having the mind of Christ in our passage today. But realize it's suffering. Sometimes we think just suffering is persecution. But biblically, suffering goes beyond that. You also suffer against temptation. You you suffer when people revile you, when enemies revile you. And as David said in in the Psalms, even more when your friends revile you. These are sufferings. And there's also physical sufferings, illnesses, those things. So don't just think about persecution when you're thinking of suffering. That's the first thing. Second thing, even though the mind of Christ in our passage is about suffering, that's the meaning, we can and should apply it beyond that. Certainly, we should have the mind of Christ in worship, in relationships, in finances, in in fact, everything. We want to know the mind of Christ. Well, the sermon today has three main points. To have the mind of Christ, we must be joined to Christ. To have the mind of Christ, we must learn Christ. To have the mind of Christ, we must be free from sin. So let's uh, dig into the passage. Point number one, to have the mind of Christ, we must be joined to Christ. Let's read starting at verse 1 of of chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh. John's prayer this morning spoke of this. This fact that Christ suffered for us is instrumental to this passage. It's pivotal. We we actually, though, to understand it, we need to back up a little bit and, uh, and get a running start to this. So this therefore links us back to something. So let's do that. Let's read um, 321 through 22. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Look at that verse in 21. And I want to ask you a question. Does baptism save us? This is a rhetorical question. 
but answer it in your mind. Does baptism save us? We get a little uneasy with that question, and we may get a little uneasy with this verse here as Protestants, especially as Presbyterians. But, but does baptism save us? The answer is yes. It saves us. It says so. Right here. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. That's what it says. So we need to believe it. We also need to understand it. Baptism is presented here as an antitype. Now, just a quick reminder of type versus antitype because it's confusing. I have to remind myself of it often. A type is something that symbolizes something else. And an antitype is the thing symbolized. As an example, the Passover lamb is the type. Christ is the antitype. Here we have an antitype that now saves us. Water baptism is the type. Spirit baptism is the antitype. And we could go even longer on that. Um, if we looked at the verses prior to that, we would see the references to water. But here, the antitype now saves us. And the antitype is spirit baptism. Well, just to make sure we don't get off track, Peter gives us a parenthesis here. He says, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Let me ask you a question. Parents know, know this really well. You can, you can wash the dirt off of your child's body. You can make yourself clean that way. But can you wash the soul of somebody with water? No, that's what he's saying here. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh. Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness with, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that watches us. What about this good conscience toward God? What does that mean? I like what Matthew Henry wrote on that. This is a re-stipulation of a resolved good conscience in gazing to believe in and be entirely devoted to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, renouncing at the same time the flesh, the world, and the devil. That's the conscience. Now, what about the phrase, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ? This reminds us that our, in our salvation, we partake in the whole cross work of Jesus Christ. This is the resurrection. The next, next verse will talk about his ascension. I like what Jay Adams said. He said, we are circumcised with Christ. We are crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, risen with Christ, seated in the heavenlies with Christ. It takes all that from, from Scripture. So the foundation for arming ourselves with the mind of Christ is to be joined to him. But why is this important? Well, first, the knowledge of Christ's mind comes through special revelation. And the only way to get special revelation is through the Holy Spirit. You know, pagans, non-Christians, they have truth. 
It's real truth. It comes from God. But they don't have the mind of Christ. Romans 2, 14 through 15 says this. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do the things in the law, these, although having, excuse me, not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. They have truth, but they don't have the mind of Christ. Getting the mind of Christ is only possible for those who are bonded to Christ. To get the supernatural truths of the Bible, we need the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Turn back a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to read this passage in its entirety. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 16. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have freely been given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So only those who are joined to Christ have access to his mind. So that's why it's so important. Well, turn back with me to First uh, Peter. The second reason we must be joined to Christ to have the mind of Christ is we need to have the same intention. The Greek word for mind here, right here in verse 1, arm yourself also with the same mind, that word. The Greek word is enoia, and it means notion, idea, thought, purpose, intention. It's used only one other time in the Bible, and it's used in a familiar verse, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents. That's the same word, intents of the heart. So we must be joined to Christ to to have his same intention. Now, how do you get the same intention as somebody? Well, there's a number of ways, but I submit to you that the best way is to be in the same family on the same mission. I think the Duff Dynasty is a good example to us all in this way. Um, They're staying connected as a family. And they're on the same mission. They have the same intent. 
Well, the third reason we must be joined to Christ, to have the mind of Christ, is that only those who are bound to Christ are kept by the power of God to salvation. He's a shepherd. But a shepherd doesn't keep another man's sheep. 1 Peter 1.5 says, We who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Kept by the power of God. Through this suffering, we need shepherding. shepherding. And the only way to be shepherded is to be connected to Christ. Another way of saying it, the only way to make it out of here alive is to be joined to Christ. Point number two, to have the mind of Christ, we must learn Christ. It says here, verse one, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Now, Peter, by the Holy Spirit, has shown us that Christ has suffered for us, which brings us into union with him. That's the standing. Now we come to an an imperative, a command. What does it say? Arm yourselves with holy living. No, it doesn't say that. that. That would be okay if he did. That would be a good thing to say. Arm yourselves with a good prayer life. Nope, doesn't say that. Arm yourselves with a good reputation. That would be great. He says, arm yourselves also with the same mind. This is more comprehensive. This is more personal. A couple who's been married a long time has good marriage. It's a good illustration. You you can see in them they have the same mind. And that is a comprehensive personal thing. The details of marriage are important, but a couple that has been married for a long time, if they have the same mind... They don't even need to say certain things. So this is much more comprehensive than just those things that I mentioned. So now, how are we going to do that? It's an imperative, and if it's a command, we have to do it. I'm going to suggest two ways that we can learn Christ. Firstly, by approaching the Word of God in a specific way. And secondly, by emulating Christ and those like him. Okay, so firstly, we learn Christ by approaching the God in a certain way. When we approach the Bible, we should not just do so academically, although that's important. We're not, but we're not just going to get information. We should look to the Bible to get the mind of Christ. It is a well-known study technique for those of you who are getting into long readings and, and, and a lot of material. When you go to study something, be looking for something that will pique your attention, that, will, that has you looking for something particular. And even if you don't find that particular thing, you're still going to get more out of it. So go looking to get the mind of Christ. Joel Beakey's um, Reformation Heritage Study Bible has a, has a helpful article in the front of it. It's called Reading the Bible Experientially. And the idea is that the Bible's unlike any other book. It's live. And if you read it experientially, it becomes a rich part of your life. 
So I'm going to just go through a couple things from that article that I have found helpful. Whatever you do, be a whole Bible Christian. Don't just read the parts you find interesting or even helpful. It's okay to have favorite parts of the Bible. I, I, I recommend it. And there are weightier parts and less weightier parts. There are parts that are easy to understand and not so easy to understand. So you might have some inclination that way. Maybe you like the historical accounts of the Scripture. Maybe you like the practicality of the Proverbs. All that's great. But God wants us to read all of His Word. Since Ethan was a toddler, we have been using a Bible reading plan. We use the McShane Bible reading plan. And that has helped us over the years to do that. Now, many people try Bible reading plans and they fail. They get discouraged by it because they'll get behind and then they open up to the reading plan and the, re the reading plan is a great reminder of how behind they are, right? So, um, and then they just kind of give up on it. Well, here's, here's what we have done. If we lose some days, we don't worry about it. We just open up whatever day it is we read that day. And that keeps us going forward. And yes, sometimes it causes a little questions for my children. They say, um, Daddy, didn't we just cross the Red Sea last time and now we're building the temple? How did we get here? <laughs> All right. But the thing is, statistically, I think Brian will tell you this, statistically, you're probably not going to miss the same days every year. So over a long period of time, you'll get to know the Bible more. Second thing from, uh, from Beaky's, reading the Bible experientially, a test to see if you, you are reading the Bible experientially is whether in the process of reading the Bible, the Bible reads you. If it's, if it's living and active, then it's going to read you personally. I also like what Jeff Bodkin said. His children asked him, how do you know when to stop reading a passage of Scripture? He said, stop reading when you find something to do. So I think these are, are ways that we can approach the, God, uh, the Word of God in getting the mind of Christ. Another way is to realize that the Word of God prepares us for battle. It prepares us for the struggle. Look back at 1 Peter 3.15. Let's read that. But sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. A familiar verse to us. One that should be very familiar to us. And I think you know it. But do you remember the context of this? Let's get some context. Let's, let's uh, go back and, and read it. Starting at verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So, preparing yourself to have a good defense is in the context of suffering when people are against you. 
I point this out because you can see how the Bible is useful for situations. It's a little more focused when you look at it that way. It has a little more street value, if you will. You know, as we train our children in homeschooling, let them know what the purpose is in this, especially for learning the Bible. And when you come across a principle in the Bible, think, how can we use this? And it's a wonderful family conversation to have. Okay, so we've been talking about learning the mind of Christ with a deliberate approach to Scripture. Secondly, we can learn Christ, the mind of Christ, by looking to examples, especially in suffering. Now, if I were to ask you, what are some good examples of suffering in Scripture? I think you're going to go to Stephen. And uh, I think you're going to go to Paul. You might go to Joseph. All good examples, and, and, and there are many more. Paul. Let's talk about Paul. Paul writes, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. John Frame writes, Paul is not perfect, but he is a mature believer who has endured much suffering for Christ, and we should study his life as well as his doctrine. He goes on, We should imitate God, Jesus, the apostles, and other exemplary characters in Scripture. Now we've, we've done this a little bit in our, in our communion meditation from Hebrews, but we didn't cover all of them. There's much more, even in Hebrews and throughout the Bible, of good examples. Now, just like we have to approach the Bible in a certain way, I'm going to recommend to you that we approach examples in a certain way. And if you don't, you be careful, you could be thrown off. And I'm going to share with you a couple errors that I have had and um, hopefully prevent you from having those same errors. When you look at people, let's, let's take Stephen, for example, and he's being stoned to death but remaining faithful to the end. And you think, man, that's great, but I'm not sure I could do that. Well, remember that it is Christ in them that is enabling their faithfulness to the end. And the same power resides in you because it is the same God that resides in you, if indeed you are a son of God. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 2 Corinthians 12.9, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In, in all your giving credit and examples, when you look to these examples, do not forget to give credit where credit is due, was really due to the captain of our salvation, to King Jesus. So in one sense, we should not think too highly of people because it is, it is Christ in them. But we also don't want to think that they're doing so well and struggling because they have a special gift, maybe a special talent for them. We can do that. My sons and I are reading uh, a book. It's called Talent is Overrated 
by Jeff Colvin. It's not a Christian book, but it, it has Christian principles. And that is that diligence and hard work pays off more than talent. You can tell by the title, talent is overrated, right? Well, let me just read a little bit in here. If you think about people who are very talented, two people may come to mind, Mozart and Tiger Woods. And so let's, let's read a little bit about uh, those two guys here. First of all, Mozart. Mozart is the ultimate example of the divine spark theory of greatness. Composing music at age five, giving public performances as a pianist and violinist at age eight, going on to produce hundreds of works, some of which are widely regarded as ethereally great treasures of Western culture. All in the brief time before his death at age 35. If that isn't talent and on a mammoth scale, then nothing is. The facts are worth examining a little more closely. Mozart's father was, of course, Leopold Mozart, a famous composer and performer in his own right. He was also a domineering parent who started his son on a program of intense training in composition and performing at age three. Now, one of the things that people say about Mozart is that he had an amazing ability to compose things in his mind, right? And I'm going to pick it up here. That view was based on a famous letter in which he says as much. Quote, and this is Mozart, supposedly. The whole, though it be long, stands almost finished and complete in my mind. The committing to paper is done quickly enough, and it rarely differs on paper from what was in my imagination. End quote. That report certainly does portray a superhuman performer. The trouble is, this letter is a forgery, as many scholars later established. Mozart did not conceive whole works in his mind, perfect and complete. Surviving manuscripts show that Mozart was constantly revising, reworking, crossing out and rewriting, rewriting whole sections, jotting down fragments and putting them aside for many months. Though it makes the results no less magnificent. He wrote music the way ordinary humans do. Tiger Woods. Here's the situation. Tiger is born into the home of an expert golfer and a confessed golf addict who loves to teach and is eager to begin teaching his new son as soon as possible. Earl, that's Tiger's dad, gives Tiger his first metal club, a putter, at the age of seven, months. <laughs> he set up Tiger's chair in the garage where Earl is hitting balls into a net and Tiger watches for hours on end. He became known at about the age of 19. But at that point, he had been practicing golf with tremendous intensity, first under his father and after age four under professional teachers for 17 years. One of uh, Tiger's uh, boyhood coaches, upon first seeing him, recalled later that, quote, I felt he was like Mozart, end quote. And indeed he was. We have our spiritual Mozarts and our spiritual Tiger Woods. You know people who know the scripture really well 
who seem to be able to pray beautiful prayers, who are very good at loving and gifting, giving things. And I, I believe from the Scripture, since we have these things as imperative to us, we can do them. All of us can do them. And so when you see somebody like that, most likely they have spent the time in being diligent. So when we look at examples, realize, yes, they may have some specific gifts, but by and large, people come by things the honest way. Right. Robinson, uh, a homeschool curriculum guy, says, the most talented often have a tendency to become lazy as a result of their talents and therefore are surpassed by those who really work. Hebrews 11:6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Well, we've covered point one. We must be joined to Christ to have the mind of Christ. And point two, we must learn Christ to have the mind of Christ. And now point three, to have the mind of Christ, we must be free from sin. The last part of verse one, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Notice that this he here is lowercase, and that is correct. This is talking about a Christian. It's not talking about Christ. What are we to do with a passage like this? It says, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This is talking about people. How can they have ceased from sin? 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. And so this, this doctrine of ceasing of sin actually has very clear teaching in different parts of the Bible. We could go to a number of places to parse this out. But actually, we don't need to. We can figure it out just from this passage right here. Notice that in verse 1, that this is past tense, both, both for Christ and for the person who has suffered in the flesh. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, past tense, arm yourselves with the same of mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh, past tense, has ceased from sin. Let's get some insight into Christ's suffering. Look back at 318. Chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. What about us? What about our suffering? That's the second half of um, verse 1 over here in 2. Um, uh, verse 1 leading into verse 2. Let's read verse 2. That he, being the Christian, should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. That's what it means. This is really about who are you living for, your own flesh or for the will of God? And those are the only two options. We get some more understanding from verse 3. Look at verse 3. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, 
lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now, I want you to notice these words. Notice the ness-ness of these words. Okay, ness is a state of being. Notice the state of being of these state of being words. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. These are conditions. So when we look at passages on sin, we have to determine is it actually talking about sin as a transgression or as an overall master? Verse 2 here is showing us that you either live for the will of God or for the lust of men. And verse 3 is showing us what it looks like for those who are living for the lust of men. So what makes the difference between the two? A salvation, a real salvation, a genuine conversion. Matthew Henry, in commenting on this passage, says this, True conversion makes a marvelous change in the heart and life of everyone who partakes of it. It brings a man off from all of his old, fashionable, delightful lust and from the common ways and vices of the world to the will of God. It alters the mind, judgment, affections, way, and conversation of everyone who has experienced it. Everyone who has experienced it. So let's go back to verse 1 and just... Just put it together. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, past tense, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Do something. Get the same mindset that Christ had. For he who has suffered in the flesh, us, past tense, has ceased from sin as a master. Now, understanding this concept of ceasing from sin is very important. Why do we still sin? Because we are still living with the old self, even though we are dead to sin. I think um, it might be good to review the history of sin in mankind. I, I think we've gone over this before, but it's, I think it's worthwhile to review. Adam. When Adam was here, he was free to sin or not to sin. He could do either one. When Adam sinned, now we come into a situation where mankind is not free not to sin. Fallen mankind will sin. The only freedom that fallen mankind has is the, the type of sin he chooses to engage in. Redemption. Once we get to redemption, we are free to sin or free not to sin. Because sin is no longer a master over us. And then in the glorified state, guess what? The only freedom we will have is the freedom to not sin. And so the last state is better than the first. But here we are in the middle, though. We've got, we've got these two states going on. We have two groups of people. We have the unregenerate who are enslaved to sin. And we have the regenerate, the born again, who are enslaved to Christ and are free not to sin. They can still sin, but they're free not to sin. There's this idea today in Christian 
churches that you can be saved and still be in habitual, repetitive sin. But the Bible clearly teaches that it is impossible to be a son of God and still be enslaved to sin. One commentator said, Christ's kingdom is implanted in the soul in the new birth through the word so that the person's nature changes and he cannot continue in a lifestyle of habitual sin. So what's the Christian to do? Well, go to Scripture. We'll do this. Ephesians 4, 22-24, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Some of you know we have a German shepherd, large German shepherd, and we got him as a puppy. And we needed to confine him. We didn't have a fence at first, so we went and we got a chain. And then he grew and he broke that chain. And we went and we got another chain, a medium-sized chain, and he grew and he broke that chain. And so the last time we went, I told my son, there's no way he's breaking this chain. Well, a week and a half ago, he broke that chain. And so I said, we're done with the chains. This is my impetus. Now I'm going to fix the gates. So we went and we fixed the gates, and the dog has the free range of the backyard. We're sitting at dinner, and John Cole looks out the window, and he says, I think Scout thinks he's still chained up. He's behaving like he's still chained up. Reality is he had the full range. He did not have to do the old ways. But he goes back to it. And I, and I know this is a common illustration that you hear here, but uh, let me tell you, it's, we saw it in our own backyard, literally. So um, the fact is, that if you're, if you're changed in state, you really have a change in state. And if you are, are son of God and you're bound to some sin, you think you're bound to some sin, you're not. You have victory over that. So repent, engage the means of grace, ask for help, and victory is certain. For the child of God. Now, it might also be helpful to think about this in theological terms. We are familiar with sanctification. Sanctification is a process. And we think about that as something that happens after the incidents of um, regeneration, repentance, faith, justification. We think those things happen and then Sanctification is a lifelong process, and it is. It is. But there's also something in the Scripture of sanctification that happens at that event, at the event of regeneration, repentance, faith, and justification. And theologians call this definitive sanctification. John Murray is the one who's made it... um, the most clear. On the back of your handouts, I have a number of verses that he cites 
for definitive sanctification, something that happened at a specific time. Now, he doesn't deny that there's progressive sanctification. That's in the Scripture. It's clearly in the Scripture. But this, this I found helpful in understanding the state of somebody who is saved. Well, we've been talking about the mind of Christ. And, uh, and I hope you see that it is possible to get the mind of Christ. And I, I also hope you see it's necessary. It's crucial. How else are we going to honor him? How else are we going to follow him? And how else are we really going to have any success in suffering but to have the mind of Christ? To have the mind of Christ, we must be joined to Christ. Only those who are connected to him can really know his mind. To have the mind of Christ, we must learn Christ. That's the command. That's the imperative. And I suggested two ways to do that. Look at the Bible in a specific way, purposefully. It has street value. It has practicality. Look to examples. Look to those examples. They're there for our learning. But be specific in how you're looking at the examples, recognizing it's Christ in them. And also, when you see an example who's really doing well, it's probably not so much his talent, but his diligence. And that should be encouraging for us. To have the mind of Christ, we must be free from sin. If you are truly a son of God, buried with him, crucified with him, raised with him, seated in the heavenlies with him, you've ceased from sin as your master. So exercise that glorious freedom. If you are not truly a child of God, call out to him. Repent. Put your faith in the only one who can save you. You cannot be armed with the mind of Christ unless you are his child. Arming ourselves is a lifetime work. But what a glorious assignment. We can do this. And we can do this as individuals. We can do this as families. And we can do it as a church. Follow him. His suffering was successful. He's not here. He's risen. Follow him. And gain in his mind, the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for instruction, encouragement, and suffering well. You have given us everything we need to suffer well, to be of the same mind, to have the same intention as Christ. Thank you that we have ceased from sin. We acknowledge your lordship over our lives so that when we suffer, we do it well. Having your mind, suffering for what is good. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.